friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a cookbook author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're optimizing our microbiome or hacking our productivity to have more time to do what we actually want with our lives, or learning the easiest and best ways to approach investing money. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if you're interested in any of them, scroll on back in the archives. Today, we're getting into charisma. You know those charismatic people who everyone is just drawn to, whether they're at a job interview or on dates or at a dinner party? This episode will literally teach you how to hack the science to be one of those people. And anyone can do it, no matter what you look like or what your life has looked like up until this moment. You just need these tricks. My guest today is Vanessa Van Edwards, the best-selling author of Captivate, The Science of Succeeding with People, which was translated into 16 languages, and the author of the brand new book, Cues, Master the Secret Language of Charismatic Communication. Her YouTube tutorials and TEDx talk have been viewed by over 50 million people, and she teaches her science-backed people skills to audiences around the world including South by Southwest and MIT and at companies like Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and more. On this episode, we get into the difference between confidence and charisma, how to dial up your charisma to network better, including a cold email secret that will make you way more likely to receive a response, two science-backed tricks to nail your next job interview, how to be the person that everyone loves at a party, the cues that you can look for that show if people like you, how to make your long-term partners or coworkers like you even more, the most off-putting thing that people commonly do in their day-to-day lives, we don't want to be doing that, and so much more. This episode is jam-packed with easy-to-apply little tweaks that I've already started using in my day-to-day life, and it's honestly such a game-changer to know that this stuff is in our power versus like, well, you're either born sparkly or you're not, And it's like, no, we are all sparkly. So let's use behavioral science to our advantage to bring our own unique sparkle to light to make sure that people see it and recognize it. Vanessa and I would love to hear what you're thinking as you listen to this episode or if there are any tips or tricks that you try in your life. I'm so excited to hear all of your success stories. So definitely screenshot and tag me. I am at Liz Moody and at V Van Edwards on Instagram. And please share this episode. If you have a friend with a job interview or a sister going on a date or a cousin who's nervous about socializing through wedding season, there's just so much amazing stuff in here and I want everyone to be able to benefit. Okay, without further ado, here's Vanessa Van Edwards on the science of charisma. I just want to get right into this. First of all, why do we want to be more charismatic? What are some situations that we could benefit from being more charismatic? Are there studies about how charismatic people fare differently in different situations? Yes. So I have a kind of funny answer. I think of charisma like a social lubricant. Go with me here. Go with me here. In that we often need a lubricant for our interactions, for our crunchy conversations, for our awkwardness. And so charisma is the fastest way that we make things more smooth. So Mm. charisma helps us talk about ourselves. It helps us listen to people. It helps us connect. It helps us on dates and on meetings and in parties and in barbecues. I think that charisma is sort of the antidote to awkwardness. I think a lot of the times we think about the antidote to awkwardness is confidence 
And don't get me wrong, I love confidence, but confidence is actually harder than charisma in a weird way. There is not a formula for confidence, but there is a formula for charisma. So the reason why I think we all need it is for those moments where you feel like you can't be your best self, you're not sure what to say, it's a little bit awkward or uncomfortable, you want to pitch your idea. I think charisma is that lubricant that makes it easier. Can you say in like a sentence what you see as the difference between confidence and charisma? I've never heard that distinction before. This is how I make the distinction. And hopefully this resonates with some listeners in that I think a lot of the times we are striving for confidence, but confidence comes and goes, right? We can have a confident day or a confident morning. Our hair day can affect our confidence. One bad text from someone can affect our confidence. So we think of confidence as this desired state but I don't really believe it's ever a permanent state. So confidence Mm. can be great to have in the moment, but I don't know a single person, even the most confident among us, who is always confident. So confidence is a feeling that we like to have sometimes, whereas charisma, I think, is a state. Charisma is when we have a presence. We know who we are. We know how we show up. We're able to walk into a room and authentically share our ideas and talk about ourselves. So I think that charisma is a way that we can achieve it. We can feel like, finally, I found my charisma. I found my unique flavor. And that can give us confidence, but that's not that permanent state. So that's how I define the difference between the two. Does that resonate with you? It does. That makes perfect sense. So can anyone be more charismatic or is it something that you're just born with? This is the myth that plagued me for two decades. I was sure, absolutely sure that you had to be born with charisma. It was a innate trait right? Because I was, I'm a recovering awkward person. I was not a cool <laughs> kid growing up, <laughs> not even close. And as a not cool kid, I spent a lot of time watching the cool kids. If you're a not cool kid, you know what I mean by this is we sat on the benches along the side of recess, all the way along the fence. That was my jam. We were really good at finding the tables that were as far away from the door of the cafeteria as possible because we're observers. And so <laughs> I would look at these amazing cool creatures. I mean, these cool creatures, these cool girls, they have like multicolored scrunchies and like slap (laughs) bracelets. I mean, they were just these walking beacons of cool and confidence. And I was absolutely sure that that was innate. They were born with great hand gestures. The cool girls were just born with that confidence. I came to learn far too late because I had sort of given up my hands. I was like, well, You're either born with it or you're not. I'm never going to have it. So I better just learn to live not having charisma. And then research began to look at what makes highly charismatic people charismatic. What is actually the formula for charisma and can we learn it? And what they found was, yes, there is a certain portion of the population that are born with great hand gestures. They are charismatic right out the womb. But actually most charismatic people have cultivated and adapted their unique Mm. flavor of charisma over time. And that's why oftentimes you'll see very charismatic people are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, because it's Mm. taken them a couple decades where they went, hmm. And this is a definition of very smart people is very smart people will say, wow, I noticed that that eye contact really helped me connect. Maybe I want to try that again. Mm. Or they sort of accidentally discovered all these charisma cues. And if you talk to highly charismatic people, especially in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and you ask them, what do you do to be charismatic? Oftentimes they can tell you very specific things that they do Hmm. to be charismatic. But the problem is, is a lot of that has been accidental, right? You accidentally figure out, oh, 
that eye contact worked well, or that gesture worked really well, or I was really charismatic around that person. I wonder what happened. So what my goal is, okay, what if we could study charismatic people? Like we study for a foreign language. This is kind of a weird way to think about it, but it's the only way that my black and white brain could understand charisma in that charismatic people use strikingly similar cues. It doesn't matter if they're politicians or athletes or celebrities or influencers or authors. If you watch them speak, you watch them interact, you can actually begin to see patterns of how they cue people. And so I started this research by accident 17 years ago, where I actually noticed the opposite. I noticed a negative person lying and I saw a cue. Specifically, Lance Armstrong was on Larry King Live and he was insisting that he had never doped. He was not doping. He had never doped this in 2005. And of course, spoiler alert, Lance Armstrong did dope. And I remember watching that interview and noticing that right after he lied, right after he said, I've never doped, he made this very specific cue called a lip purse. He pressed his lips together into a hard line. And I went, what was that? What was that, mm. that thing he just did? And I began to look in the research and I found that this is actually a very common nonverbal cue for withholding or keep it together or keep it in. And they've found that a lot of the times liars do this right before or after a lie as if mm. to say, keep it together. Don't incriminate yourself. Don't say too much. And I went, wow, if we know we've identified some of these universal patterns, why don't we create like a glossary for them? So very slowly, I started to collect these negative cues by liars and people in shame or duping politicians. And this other bucket, the very beginning, was just positive and negative of charismatic cues, the cues that charismatic people use. And quickly, I realized that there's a system that we can use to learn. If you are not naturally charismatic, you can learn what charismatic people do and then begin to adopt and cultivate those cues for yourself. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. Did you know there are actually two distinct types of blueberries, wild blueberries and ordinary blueberries? You might have seen them in the packages in the freezer section of the grocery store that say wild on them, and that's actually way more important than you might think. When compared to ordinary blueberries, wild blueberries have 33% more anthocyanins, a flavonoid that gives plants their dark purpley blue color and is well studied for its anti-diabetic, anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties, as well as its ability to help with the prevention of cardiovascular diseases. Wild blueberries also have two times more antioxidants, 72% more fiber, and 32% less sugar than ordinary blueberries. And honestly, I think they taste better too. They've never been hybridized or genetically modified to enhance or alter their naturally occurring characteristics. So they have a lot more genetic diversity than a lot of the produce that you might find at the grocery store. And that diversity gives wild blueberries a wonderfully complex, sweet, tart flavor that is utterly addictive. Each berry also tends to be slightly smaller in size than ordinary blueberries, which I find makes them work way better in baked goods. I use them every time I make the healthy blueberry muffins that I recently shared on my Instagram, and they always turn out so good. I also love them in smoothies. Smoothies for me are a time to pack in as many nutrients as possible to start my day off right and to have a flavor that I'm excited to get out of bed for. And wild blueberries check both of those boxes. My favorite right now is a few cups of frozen wild blueberries, spinach, a banana, tahini, vanilla protein powder, cinnamon, sea salt, and water to blend. It is absolute heaven. 
Wild blueberries are truly wild. Unlike regular blueberries, they're never planted. They grow naturally where Mother Nature put them thousands of years ago, which is honestly so crazy to think about. So that means that you can get them fresh if you find yourself in Maine during the summer. But fear not, because 90% of the wild blueberry harvest is flash frozen. You know I love frozen produce because it often has even more nutrients than fresh since it's frozen at the peak of ripeness and you don't lose nutrients in transit. And in the case of these wonderful nuggets of joy, it means that you can get wild blueberries in the freezer aisle in most grocery stores around the country. Just look for the packaging that says wild blueberries and you should be good. But if you want more information or recipe inspiration, definitely go to wildblueberries.com or check out the link in the show notes. That's wildblueberries.com or check out the link in the show notes. Now let's get back to the episode. Can you be just as charismatic if you're an introvert as you can if you're an extrovert? Okay. I'm so glad you asked this question. There is this pervasive myth that I think extroverts have put out there by accident that you have to be extroverted to be charismatic. A lot of the very well-meaning people skills books that I picked up early on in my life. So I knew I didn't have social skills. So I picked up classic books like Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. The problem with a lot of these books and courses is they're written or done taught by well-meaning extroverts. And extroverts, Mm. they have a natural affinity for people. So they teach people skills, basically teaching non-extroverts how to be extroverted. And that is the worst, most painful, most exhausting way for an introvert or an ambivert to learn social skills. Because basically you're telling someone, don't be yourself to be charismatic. Mm. So 100%, I know for a fact, you can be charismatic and you do not have to be an extrovert. In fact, I know many extroverts who are not charismatic at all, right? Luckily, they are actually two different things. And this is the perfect time to talk about what does it actually mean to be charismatic? It does not mean being extroverted. You do not have to fake it till you make it. You do not have to pretend to be something you're not to be charismatic. So to be charismatic, research out of Princeton University looked at how we judge and interact with people. And what they found was when we are interacting with people, we are always trying to answer two basic questions. Can I trust you? And can I rely on you? And these two basic questions are what keep us safe and also keep us in the know. So the two Mm. traits that very highly charismatic people have, the reason why we love charismatic people is they are off the charts in two specific traits, warmth, trust, and competence. And that highly Mm. charismatic people, when they interact in the world, they are signaling constantly to others. They are cueing others, high trust high warmth, which is likability, friendliness, approachability, collaboration, and at the very same time, high competence, power, capability, memorability, efficiency. And the key here is a balance of both. The reason why charisma is so hard to get is because if you have an imbalance, too much warmth without enough competence or too much competence without enough warmth, you are not seen as charismatic. And so that sweet Mm. spot of being both likable and powerful, that's the definition of high charisma. So something was noticeably missing from there that I think a lot of us associate with charisma, which is being physically attractive. How much does that matter? They have studied this. It is definitely helpful to be attractive, but attractiveness is actually a facet of both warmth and competence. And here's what I mean by that. So if you're attractive, people will often see you as more approachable 
If you are attractive, it means you take care of your appearance, which can be a facet of competence. So attractiveness can help both your warmth and competence, but it is certainly not the only factor. And you can definitely have both warmth and competence and not be attractive at all. And then is there a difference between what we perceive as charismatic in a woman versus a man? I'm thinking about there's certain qualities I feel like sometimes we celebrate in men societally that we react negatively to in women having those same qualities. What's really interesting is when I was breaking down the cues, so cues are the social signals humans send to each other. Highly charismatic people send very clear cues. And both men and women cue other humans. Both men and women have warmth and competence. Both men and women need high warmth and high competence to be charismatic. However, there are differences in the types of cues men tend to use and the types of cues that women tend to use. Mm. So this is why, and this is why we have different flavors of charisma. I keep mentioning this flavors. What I mean by that is most people think of highly charismatic as the life of the party extrovert or the presidential charismatic extrovert. So that's the one brand that we tend to think of as being charismatic. But there's also the quiet, contemplative introvert. There's the mm. compassionate, nurturing healer. There's the wise, loving teacher. Those are all different flavors. When I mention each of those kind of archetypes, you can think of totally different types of people. They look different, they mm. dress different, they have different genders. In fact, you and I might have even assigned a compassionate, nurturing healer to a woman. Maybe. I didn't say she or he, but what I've noticed is when I mention different types of warmth and competence, that balance, people will ascribe different personality types to each of those different explanations because... For example, women tend to head tilt more than men. So head tilt is one of the 96 cues. There's 96 cues in the book. A head tilt is a universal sign of warmth. So in the book, I break it down. There's 96 cues. There's warm cues, competent cues, charismatic cues, the cues that we love no matter what, and then danger zone cues, cues that we should never use. Warm cues are signals of collaboration, trust, engagement, openness, and a head tilt universally is what humans do across cultures and genders and races when they're trying to listen better by mm. saying, do you hear that? We tilt our head and we expose our ear. And that's because that's literally our physically best listening position. And so women tend to use the head tilt more than men. Do men use it? Yes. But if you look at a lot of LinkedIn profile pictures, if you look at 50 men and 50 women, I bet you you're going to see more head tilts in the female group and the male group. I don't know why women tend to use this more, but they tend to use that cue more often. There was a study I talked about in the book where they analyzed thousands of paintings of women through history. And they found that women tend to head tilt more in paintings and portraits. So does that mean men can't use it? No, but it does mean that there's a certain kind of recipe or flavors that women tend to gravitate towards different than men. Does that mean that if a woman is in a situation that women are typically, I'm picturing like a boardroom where she's around a bunch of men, would there be a situation where she'd want to like tamp down on the head tilting to be perceived better by the men? I mean, in an ideal world in the future, women will be celebrated for all of the qualities that they uniquely have. But in the world that we have now, would tamping down on those qualities in these male-dominated situations be a good idea? So yes, this is what highly charismatic people do. Highly charismatic people dial up 
their warmth when they need it and dial up their confidence when they need it. They literally know what cues they can use to bond to their environment. And so really highly charismatic people, first they find kind of their default. That's the first sort of phase of the book is what's your flavors? Like where do you lean? Are you a little higher in warmth, a little higher in confidence? What cues do you use? The next level is if you're in a boardroom with a bunch of men and you want to dial up your competence because you know the people around the room are highly competent. They, they value competence in numbers meeting. It's about capability and getting things done. They don't want to chit chat. They don't want to have the rapport. They don't want to hear about families. All they want to do is get to those numbers. It would behoove you to actually dial up those competence cues to mirror and match them. And that's where really highly charismatic people excel so much in their careers and their relationships is they are so, and I will call this empathy. I think this is actually a really beautiful aspect of empathy. They are so aware of the people around them that they know how to mirror and match with their cues. They Mm. use that as a nonverbal or verbal sign of respect. So the way that I would think about it is less about tamping down your head tilt and more about if you walk into a room with highly competent folks, men or women, and you say, you know what? I want to mirror and match these people out of respect for them. I want to go to their level. I know exactly what cues I'm going to use to dial up to mirror and match them so that I can make everyone feel like we belong. I think that's a different way of thinking about empathy. And it's also a lot more empowering. It's less about, I'm not going to be me. And it's more about, I know exactly who I am and I know exactly who you are. And out of respect for you, I'm going to come to where you are. I'm going to come to your page. I love that. That makes total sense. I would love with that in mind to walk through kind of a few different scenarios and maybe you could share a few different tips that we could use to dial up our charisma in each scenario, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So along with the work theme, let's pretend we are at a job interview. Can you share three things that we can maybe do to make the person interviewing us like us? So it's interesting you use the word like. So likability has been proven to work in the workplace. In other words, we do tend to hire people we like. We tend to buy from people we like. We like working with people we like. So likability is actually one aspect of what's going to help you get along in an interview. But the issue here is this is what I think gets highly warm people into trouble. So if you lean a little higher in warmth, likability is your first priority. Highly warm people are collaborators. They are oftentimes supporters. They are cheerleaders. They want everyone to get along. They want everyone to be liked and they want to feel liked. But highly warm people, they run into this problem where their desire to be liked gets in the way of their need to be respected. And so they will walk into an interview or a pitch or negotiation or a meeting and they want to be liked and they are liked, but they're not always respected. Without the competence cues, the interviewer might be like, oh, I would love to have lunch with her. I just loved her, but I don't think she's qualified enough for this role. Too bad, right? Or worse, you know, I really like her. I think that she's going to be a great fit on the team, but I don't think she's as qualified. So I can't offer her the same compensation. So I'm going to cut her compensation package, but I really like her. So I just think she's going to be great on the team. But Maybe, you know, we have to split this into two different roles. That's where highly warm people who are often people pleasers get into problems. And notice I'm not saying women. There are also very highly warm men who run into this problem as well. It does feel though that most often women will focus on being liked and that 
is then it risks their need to be respected. So if you're going to interview, I actually want you to think about warmth and competence. I want you to think, how can I be both liked and respected? How can I be both friendly and credible? Friendly and credible is like the superpower potent magic unicorn flavored glitter combination for an interview. We love working with people who are friendly and credible. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. We're talking all about conversation starters in this episode, so I would be remiss not to mention my very first totally self-funded product, the Healthier Together deck. It's got over 150 amazing conversation starting questions that bring the exact type of deep, connected, interesting convos that we have here on the pod into your everyday life. These are perfect whether you want to do an icebreaker at work or if you're on a first date. My sister brings them on first dates all the time, and she says that it has completely changed how she connects with people. Or if you're at a bachelorette or on a road trip with your partner of 20 years. Actually, some people even use the questions for journaling and self-reflection, which I absolutely love. Basically, if you never want to have a boring conversation again, and you want permission to ask all the questions that you really want to know about because it's not you asking, it's the deck. You're off the hook. You need this deck. I like to just leave one out in public places, like on my kitchen table, on the coffee table, in the car. And then either someone you're with will like casually pick it up and be like, what's this? Because it's so pretty and colorful and people just want to reach for it. Or you can just pull a card when you're hanging or cooking dinner or whatever and be like, oh, like, let's just do one of these cards really quick. I know some people like to sit down and properly play a game, and I like that too. But most of the time for me, that casualness is key, especially for playing with people who might be a little bit more hesitant. And trust me, every time that I have started playing with one of those hesitant people, they quickly become obsessed especially men. Men weirdly love the deck. I think because society often doesn't give them permission to have the deep, satisfying conversations that they really want to have. The questions are divided into six categories that sort of tie to the stuff that we talk about here on the pod. We've got wealth, love, which includes self-love, romantic love, and friendship, well-being, which has all the health and mental health content, adventure and what if, which are the most sort of like irreverent, playful categories, and growing up, which is all about how our families and circumstances shape our lives. Here, I'm going to pull a few sample questions. All right, first one. Let's say that you can keep your job but work anywhere. Would you move? If so, where and why? Okay, next. Ooh, this is one of our signature interactive cards, which really encourage you to share with the people you're playing with, and it ensures that the game changes all of the time based on who you're pulling the cards with. Okay, this is from Wealth. Would you be willing to share your salary with whomever you're playing with and vice versa? Discuss why or why not. I love that one. I just think it sparks such interesting conversations. All right, here's another one. This is from Love. What is your love language? Can you share a time that you feel someone spoke it well? I love that one. Oh, so good. All right, This one is from Adventure. What imaginary or fake place or thing do you wish was real? Oh, I love that one. Okay, one more. This is from Wellbeing. How has your family's relationship with health impacted how you live your life? Ugh, I have so much to say there for for good and for bad. Okay, trust me, you need this deck in your life. To snag one for yourself, go to htdeck.com. Again, that's HT, like healthier together, htdeck.com. 
where you can also read reviews and see the cards for yourself. They are so pretty and I am so proud of them. They're also really perfect for gifting. We have a lot of holidays for just like fun little gifts coming up and this is just perfect to have on hand for that type of thing. All right, that's htdeck.com. Now let's get back to the episode. So with that in mind, are there specific things we can do to dial up our credibility, our competency? Yes. So there's 96 different cues and you want to pick a blend of the ones that work for you. So a couple of examples is, let's say that you're, it depends on where you fall, right? So if you're already high in warmth, I would advise you to do competence cues. If you're already high in competence, I advise you to do warmth cues. But like, here's an example of like one of my favorite warmth cues. So for warmth, the very first thing that someone wants to know again is if someone can trust us. And so you want to give some sort of nonverbal greeting the moment your interview starts. And what's happening a lot more and more now is our interviews are on Zoom, especially our first interviews. And so a problem that's happening on interviews or meetings is that we lose our nonverbal warmth. We're no longer hugging. We're no longer handshaking. We're no longer having that moment of greeting because the video pops on and it's like, hi. Oh, so nice to meet you. <laughs> yep. Well, I'm, I'm, thanks for having me. Okay, great. Let's get started. Right. We have, it's like this awkward because we've missed that critical aspect of nonverbal warmth. So the moment your video hops on, I want you to do one of the nonverbal warmth cues. So that could be a wave of a visible palm. It could be a nod. Hello. It could be a smile. If that feels natural to you, I hate advising people to smile when they don't feel like it. So Make sure in the first 10 seconds of interaction, you're adding some sort of nonverbal cue for warmth. That's a really uh, physiological way to keep someone calm, to show them you can trust me, especially an open palm. Another competence cue that you can do, and again, there's a, a ton, so I want you to pick the ones that are natural for you. But one of my favorites is for competence is maximizing. This is really weird. This is a really weird cue. Maximizing the space between your earlobe and your shoulder. I know that's a very weird measurement that you've probably never taken, but what happens is researchers from University of British Columbia found that across genders and cultures and races, when people win a race, when they are feeling pride, they take up a lot of space. And specifically, they tend to keep their head angled up and their shoulders are down and relaxed and they will open up their body wide. They have no barriers between themselves and others. In defeat, Losing athletes do the opposite. They typically tuck their chin to their chest. They roll their shoulders in and down. Sometimes they crunch their ears down. So they're almost like in like an inner turtle position to protect their jugular, right? When we're in defeat, we want to protect our jugular, our, 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 our vital organs. We cross our arms over our body and pin our, our arms tightly to our torso. When someone first meets you and during an interview, we like to see people who look more like the winner and less like the loser. Now, I don't want you to walk in like you've won a race. However, you, you want to make sure that the space between your ear and your shoulder is maximized. That is the single fastest way to show someone I'm open, I'm not protective, I'm confident, I'm relaxed. And that is what interviewers are looking for. They're looking for subtle signals of anxiety because they want to make sure that they're not missing anything. And so when your video pops on or you walk into a room, don't have your purse hunched up with your shoulder hiked up towards your shoulder. Make sure it's nice and down and back. Make sure when the video pops on, you're not hunched over your computer with your, with your shoulders up. I've also seen a lot of people start their videos. They go, hi, 
and they have their shoulders up towards their ear and they give like a little tiny wave with their arm pinned to their side, like trying to get as small as possible. Can you, you know what I'm saying? Like we almost like duck and tuck. Yeah. So that, and then all those, so they, they had this little duck and tuck, like, hi, with this little wave and this upper little girl's voice. Hi. And they have their like shoulders up here. And then they start the interview and they relax their shoulders and they carry on like a normal conversation. The problem is that first impression showed you're anxious, you're nervous. And what research has found is our cues are contagious. When we show up with negative body language, it inspires negative body language. And so we don't like to be around people who are in defeat or shame because we don't want to catch it. And so interviewers, a lot of the times are doing back to back to back interviews and they don't know why they just don't feel right about a candidate. I've, I've worked a lot of hiring managers and they'll say, you know, sometimes I just, I leave a meeting and they had all the right answers, but I just didn't think they'd be a good fit. I, I just didn't get a good feeling from them. What they are talking about is they caught negative cues of anxiety or shame or guilt or anger. And they were like, I didn't like it. And they don't want that in their organization. So that one cue maximizes, and not only in your first impression, but keeping your shoulders down and your head up for the entire interview, you'll be shocked if you go watch old recordings of yourself, you might be surprised to see how often your shoulders creep up and your chin and head sink down. Every time you do that, you're signaling anxiety. That's so interesting. Okay. What about something like networking? And you can speak to networking in person. You can speak to networking by, via like LinkedIn or email. What are we kind of looking to dial up if we're trying to make a good impression with somebody that we want to build a connection with? Yeah. So what's a good thing to keep in mind, I haven't um, shared about this yet, but it's kind of a good basis to understand is so cues are the social signals we send to each other. And there are actually four modes of communication. So you just mentioned a couple of modes. You said it could be over LinkedIn or it could be in person, could be over email. So we're talking about cues. There's four. The first is nonverbal. So our body language, our gestures, our posture, our facial expressions. The second is vocal. So how we say our words, our pitch, our volume, our tone, our cadence, those all say things about what we feel. The third is verbal, the actual words we use. And the last one is imagery. Imagery is like the colors we wear, the props in our background, the props in our LinkedIn profile picture, the background of our LinkedIn profile picture, uh, the fonts we use, those all carry different cues. And what's important is to know how many modes you can use. So for example, my least favorite kind of networking is purely verbal. There's literally only one channel you have, right? If it's if you're only networking on LinkedIn, you have imagery with a little bit of your profile picture and then you have verbal with your profile and your and your messaging back and forth. Same with email. Email is one channel and verbal. And by the way, there are great tactics for being charismatic over email. So it is possible, it is very possible. But if possible, you're going to do your best networking when you add channels. So you're going to make more deep connections when you're able to activate more of those cues. Why? We feel like we can trust people if we see all four of their channels, right? Like if I meet someone over email, it doesn't matter how charismatic they are. I still don't feel like I really know them. Then maybe if we hop on the phone, I get a little more, if I get a voice memo from them, I feel like, oh yeah, I kind of get a little bit more of a sense of who she is. And then finally, when we're in person, it's like, ah, I finally get a sense of who this person is. So one thing is if you can maximize the number of channels in your preferred mode of networking choice, I would do it. So this could be 
going to the right conferences, going to the right networking events, uh, going to the right parties, great. But it also could be adding channels to your existing ones. So for example, LinkedIn is adding video option to your profile. So you can actually add a video to your LinkedIn profile. You can also send voice memos to people. You can also embed videos for people. So the best networking I've done, even at very high levels. So, you know, now we're doing lots of pitches to, to big corporations to do their trainings, to deliver our courses to them. My best cold pitches are not just emails. My best cold pitches are actually emails, which are very thought out with embedded videos, introducing myself. Hey, Sarah, it's so good to meet you. You know, I've heard so much about your work. I read your memoir last year and I absolutely loved it. I was thinking in chapter seven of your memoir, you mentioned this beautiful story about your organization. I want to introduce you to my work, see if I could send you a copy of my book. And I would love to connect my call schedulers below if you want to hop on the phone or you're welcome to send a video back, whatever's most comfortable for you. So like a video like that, it's the same thing as what my email said, right? But you can hear my voice. If it's a video, you can see my face. She would feel like she gets to know me. And I have found that those videos work, I would say a hundred times better than just an email, like literally a hundred times. And the speed at which I've been able to build rapport by just sending voice memos back and forth or just sending videos back and forth, it doesn't even compare to just DMing or emailing or messaging back and forth. So I would think about playing with those modes as ways to differentiate yourself, but also just in a way to send more cues. That's honestly genius. And it's interesting because I've even been doing that intuitively a little bit. Like when I'm DMing somebody that I've just met on Instagram, I'll start sending voice notes. And then I feel like that helps to actually like build the friendship. But I, it's interesting to be able to be like, oh, scientifically, that's why that works. Yes. Okay. So this is a great example. So in Instagram, I DM with uh, other people, other influencers or authors, or, you know, when I ask for interviews or I ask for, you know, if, if people are interested in covering the book, I send voice memos and videos. And it is, a t- it's almost like, almost like having a video call a little bit, even mm-hmm. though we're doing it asynchronously. And there's something very powerful about it. I will say though, one little note is um, for very important people, they're busy. And so, and also sometimes they are not checking their DMs. So people will sometimes send DMs to me, but my team checks my DMs as well as me. So I would always, if you're emailing a very important, if you're messaging a very important person, always include a verbal message as well so that it can be screenshotted and sent to that person. Or if they watch the video and it goes away, it doesn't go away. So if I'm sending a, a like a even a cold DM to someone, if I'm sliding their DMs, I think that's what the young kids say, um, <laughs> I will always start with text. So, you know, if it was you, hey, Liz, uh, I'm so excited for our recording coming up. Um, I can't wait to get to know uh, your audience a little better and help them out. I recorded a little me- message for you so that we can um, just make sure we're on the same page. Message. <laughs> Because then even if it's missed, they can write, the team can write back to you and say, hey, you know, we saw you reached out, you know, the video disappeared before I was able to do it. That's helped me a lot because I used to send just videos and they would get ignored. That makes perfect sense. And I've definitely been on the receiving end of stuff that I've wanted to attend to, but just like haven't had time in the moment and then it gets lost because you get so many DMs. And so I think that's a really nice way to approach the situation. Okay, let's get back to being charismatic in any situation. Let's leave work and go to a party. What can we do? Can you share maybe a few specific things that we could do if we're at a party? We're kind of like standing in the corner. 
I usually stand by the food table for a really long time. It's my comfy, happy place. Is there something <laughs> yes. that we can do to be like that charismatic person at the party that people want to be around? Yes. Yeah, so I'll, first of all, give just a tactical tip, which helps um, put you in the right place, which is we did a study back in the day at Science People where we observed people at parties, like their foot patterns, um, networking events and parties to see where people congregated and spent the most time. And we found there was a sweet spot. And it, this is always where I stand now. So if you're like looking for a very easy place to meet people, I love um, sitting by the, the buffet or the food. That's always a great one. The only problem with that one is you can get people who are so hungry and mid-bite that they are short <laughs> with you. You know what I mean? Because they're like, I'm not <laughs> yeah, yeah. just let me eat my food. You know what I mean? Um, so you can yeah. sometimes get like, and, and then it's harder to shake hands because they just got a plate of food. So that's like my second or third choice. My first choice is actually um, right as people exit the bar or right as people exit where they get drinks. And the reason for this is because here's what happens psychologically when someone enters into a networking event or party. I'm going to actually combine the two, which is they come in, they got to scope the room, right? If you watch people in the room, the very first thing they do is they do big head movements. We actually coded this. Big head movements. They're scan, 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 scan. Who do I know? Who do I know? Where's the host? Where's the food? Where's the bathroom? Where's the drinks? Where's the food? Where's the bathroom? Where's the drinks? Where do I put down my coat? Okay, that's all that's happening for someone in the first five to 20 seconds. That is the worst place to stand. So rookie mistake is that people will stand right when people enter the room to as if to like greet newcomers. That's the worst place to stand because people need to get their bearings. They have to go pee. They have to get their drink. They want to put their coat down. They want to get their name tied. They have a, a present to drop yeah. off for the birthday person. Like, so that's the worst. So don't stand within like 10 feet of the door or like right as I line when people come in, let people come in, let them do their little thing. Then the usually the next thing that someone does besides logistics, besides like dropping off their coat or a present, is they want to drink water, coffee, beer. That's usually the next thing people will do, especially if they don't already know someone. And that's actually good because you want people who already know people to go find their people, get it out of their system, go greet the host, <laughs> go find your person. You want the people who come in and don't see someone they know who are like, hmm, where should I go? Get a drink and they go to the bar. They fill up on water, they get a coffee. Right as they turn around with their full drink, you can be their social savior. Mm. You are right there, right as they're like, who do I talk to? Who do I talk to? Who do I talk to? Which is what happens when you have a full drink and you're about to face a new room. You can say, hey, that wine looks great. How is it? Or just, so what brings you here? Do you know the host? Or just, hey, I'm Vanessa. Nice to see ya. That little zone is like permission free. Like you, it's a great little area where everyone's looking to connect. So that's where I would put yourself right there as people are exiting the bar. Um, and also it gives you an opportunity to refill your drink quite frequently if you desire, <laughs> which is always a nice bonus. And then your biggest thing here is trying to ask non-autopilot questions. So mm. this is really hard. I know it's really hard, but one of the challenges I'm trying to encourage to the world is let's stop asking, how are you and what do you do? Yes. Hallelujah. Seriously. Yep. Let's go on a, what do you do diet? Because the world doesn't need more. What do you do's? And the, the reason I say this is because I think one, most people don't feel that what they do defines them. And if people are in transition, I think that sometimes it can be hard because they're then put into a box immediately. It's also a little bit asking, what's your worth? A little bit, even though that, even if that might not be the intention, 
And I think it's also default, like it's total autopilot, right? We we meet someone and we're like, autopilot, autopilot, how are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Oh, that's nice. Okay, bye. Like it's it's like the same conversation. So try if you can to ask slightly more awake questions. And these questions, I think, snap us out of autopilot because they're not the same question we've answered a million times before. So some of my favorites, and we actually tested these. We did a huge speed networking test where we had people do different assigned conversation starters and then rate their conversation in terms of quality. And we found that what do you do and how are you got the worst ratings? Like very stunted, you know, it would be like, what do you do? Oh, you know, I'm just in marketing. What do you do? Oh, I'm just, notice that you suggest, oh, I'm just a, a, I'm just a teacher. Cool. So uh, what got you started in that line of work? Oh my gosh, like, please, like kill. Send me home. I'd rather watch Netflix. So those are like almost scripted and they were very uh, choppy, not fun conversations. The conversations that got the best ratings were working on anything exciting recently or doing, are you doing anything exciting recently or have any fun or exciting plans coming up for the weekend? The reason why that's a good one is like, it's not too personal. Like I'm not saying, so what's your biggest goal in life right now? Like, that's not how you can't, you know, you can't. Like, that's I how I start conversations, question. like for better or for worse. <laughs> Liz, you and I would get along great. You and I would get along great. I'd be like, Liz, yes, let's talk about goals, girl. Let's do it. Like, yes, you and me would, would love it. Like I would, if, if anyone meets me at a party, please ask me what my biggest goal is right now, because I would love it, would love it. But, um, you got to get a little safe, especially for our introverts. I try really hard to give tips that respect our introverts. Our introvert respectful conversation starter is, you know, doing anything exciting recently, working on exciting recently. You can also say, did you do anything fun this past weekend? Have any fun plans for the weekend coming up? Another one that I really like is just what's good. What's been good these days? I ask that a lot to like my colleagues and stuff like that, who I already know, but I'm just like seeing them again. I do that a lot also with like you know, you go to the same holiday party every year and you see the same person that you only yeah. see at this holiday party and you're like, what's their name? What do they do again? Oh yeah, it's really boring. What do I talk about? So then what you want to say is, so what's been good this year? Highlight of the year. You're my holiday party friend, right? Instead of, so how's work? Which is like kiss of death for a conversation. So getting a little bit juicy with your willingness to ask slightly off autopilot conversations. That's what's going to get people really into talking to you. It makes you more memorable. It makes them more memorable. And it's sort of like a personal challenge that if you're willing to take it up, I will go on the diet with you. I've been on the diet. It's been great. I'm losing tons of conversational weight and I love it. And so just, uh, if you're willing to join it, uh, we can all ask each other better questions. You're listening to the healthier together podcast. Zach was recently out of town for a few days and my sister slept over because, you know, I'm in my 30s and the thought of being in a dark house alone at night still terrifies me. Of course, in the morning, I made us both glasses of AG1 by Athletic Greens and she told me that I have been talking about it all wrong. I listen to your podcast every week, she said, and honestly, she does. And it's so cute and it makes me so happy. And you do not convey how delicious it is. She told me she'd been afraid to try it because she thought it would taste vegetal like green juice when actually it tastes like some kind of vanilla candy, she said, or like really fancy bubblegum. Anyway, she's now addicted, and I promised her that I would tell you that AG1 not only tastes good for a nutritional drink, but it just tastes good, period. Like it is very enjoyable to drink. And then how you feel after makes it even more enjoyable. 
I love how much energy it gives me, especially since I don't drink caffeine. I often will use it as more of like a mid-afternoon pick-me-up to beat back that slumpy 3 p.m. feeling. And I feel so good after I drink it. Alert, but not jittery at all, just sharp and ready to take on whatever's next in my day. And that makes sense. AG1 has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods or superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that were specifically selected to support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. And maybe even more importantly, they actually use clinically researched amounts of everything they include. So you're actually getting the studied benefits. I checked on that because a lot of times, even if it says something on the package, it's like such a tiny pinch that it's basically just marketing. It's got things like ashwagandha, which doctors I interview keep recommending to help with calm and balance, burdock root, chlorella, CoQ10, selenium, B vitamins, magnesium glycinate, a bunch of greens and veggies. It's just such good insurance that you're getting all of the nutrients you need to feel your absolute best no matter what happens for the rest of the day. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. And they're third-party tested, which is always so important to look for. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash healthier together. I love the travel packs. I keep one with me pretty much at all times. And the vitamin D3 and K2 is amazing. You actually always want to make sure that you look for K2 with your D3 because the K2 helps the D transport calcium to your bones where it's needed rather than calcifying in your arteries. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash healthier together to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now let's get back to the episode. What if you're asking these good questions and the other person is just like giving you nothing back and you just feel like you're dragging this conversation along like physically behind you and it weighs a lot? I mean, time to go to the bathroom. Okay. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm only half joking though, because, you know, there are certain people where you're going to be talking to them and, uh, they're not picking up the, they're not picking up the question, right? Like they're, they're, I call that convert call carrying the conversational load, right? If you ask a question, you're trying to give the conversational ball to someone else so they can carry the load for a while and you pass back and forth in a really good conversation. Both people are carrying the conversational load. It really, really sucks when you're like, have any fun plans coming up? And they're like, nope. And you're like, great. Well, anything uh, good happening for you this week? Nope. You have a choice in that moment where you can be like, this is not my person. This is not my person. And I give you, not that you need my permission, but I give you full permission to be like, well, cool. You know, I'm going to go refill my drink. Or so it's okay if not everyone is your person. Like that is okay. There are some people where you're just not going to click with them. And that's okay. And it took me a long time, a very long time to be okay with people who I just don't have a vibe with. So it's okay if that does not work. That might not be your person. You have a second choice, which is an interesting and also just as courageous choice. I think both these are courageous, which is I'm going to answer first. I'm going to put my conversational vulnerability out first. So if someone says, nope, you can say, oh, well, no worries. You know, I've, I had a really slow week last week too. 
This week, I'm super excited because I'm finally fill in the blank, right? So you honor where they are. You have a little me too moment if you also want that. And then you just go for it. You know, tell them a story. Tell them something about yourself, even though they didn't ask. And you know what? I know those people who never ask a freaking question back. You know what I'm talking about? You know, those people who are just like, never, you ask them a thousand questions and they just refuse to ask questions back. Yep. Those people, you have a choice. They're either not your people or you're just going to go for it. And you're just going to answer for yourself. And sometimes that really works. Like sometimes they just needed a little bit of time to process. It's happened to me before where someone is so taken aback by just not being asked, what do you do? (laughs) They, They were so shocked that they, it like took them two or three of my answers to like, realize they had something fun in their own life and then (laughs) be willing to share it. I also would little note here is there was one conversation in our experiment that was, um, it mixed up, messed up our data, which was what's your story. So if you've ever been asked that question, you know, what's your story? That question, interestingly, people either loved it. They gave it a five out of five on the conversational scale or they hated it and they gave it a one or a zero on the conversational scale. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. Extroverts and people who are proud of their story love that question. People who don't feel their story is complete, people who are not defined by their story, people who are introverted or want to reveal that slowly are really rattled by that question. So I would say, be very careful when you ask that question because it, it can be good or bad. And also be prepared if it is asked of you. So if someone asks you, what's your story? The advice I always give to my introverts and my recovering awkward people is think of your story right now. So like pause this, think about how you would like to answer that question so that when it comes up for you, you're not put into scarcity of like, uh, 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 like what's my story? So you can think of an answer that you're comfortable with that. So you're ready for that question as well. Cause there are some people, by the way, that is their question. That is all they ask. They trot it out at every party and every network event. So you want to be ready for those folks. Are there any things that we can look for to tell if other people like us, like cues we can kind of be scared? I know we've, I've been to a million parties and you always have that like post facto conversation of like, oh, do you think they liked me and whatever? Like, is there things we can look for to scientifically know if it's true? Yes. So, so actually let me ask a, a, a question about your question, which is, do you mean people who you're trying to identify, oh, this is my person or to identify if the conversation went well? I think just whenever you meet a new person and you're kind of curious, like, oh, could we be friends or could we date? Or even in a job interview situation, like, are there universal cues that kind of show that what you're putting out there is landing well? Yes. Okay. So um, interest cues or cues that show someone is like into it. It doesn't have to be romantic. It could also be professional, right? Like someone is like, yeah, they're vibing with you is uh, there's a couple. So one is uh, leaning. So leaning is a really interesting little cue because it activates a different part of our brain. In other words, if wherever you are right now, if you're standing or you're sitting or you're chopping or you're walking, just try leaning forward like an inch or two, very slight. What happens is they found that when we lean in slightly, it activates a certain part of our prefrontal cortex that's motivation, that's pre-action. And the reason for that is because all five senses are pre-activated by leaning. 
If you want to smell something better, you lean in. If you want to see something better, you lean in. If you want to hear something better, you lean in. If you want to touch something, you lean in. And so our body knows that this is a universal engagement cue. And so we do this naturally in really good conversation because when we're really into conversation, we lean in because we're like, yes, tell me more. I love it. And you'll notice that when in a meeting, when people are super into your point, they will literally lean in further or they'll lean their head forward. So um, when you're in an interview, when you're on a date, when you're in a party, watch for just subtle leans. You've just hit on something, whatever you were talking about, whatever you were saying, that that person is like into it. And that's good. So the more leans you see, the better. That's like a sign of engagement. The other one that I would, it's pretty simple that we can just keep in the back of our heads is when people mirror and match you. So mirroring is quite a complicated cue because it takes two people or even three or four or five people. Mirroring is when we subtly mimic the people around us. And it's actually not just body language. It's also vocal. So research has found that we tend to mirror the vocal frequency of the highest, most powerful person in the room. So we are very aware of our vocal cues. We do this totally subconsciously in that if we really like someone or we think someone is impressive or um, we should take note of them, even our voice will subtly match the frequency of their voice. And so you want to look for these just very subtle mirroring. It could be sitting the same way. It could be sounding the same way. It could be holding our hands the same way. I have noticed that, you know, in really good interactions, my, my husband and I, we love to play uh, guess the date, which is when we go to a restaurant and we guess if someone's a couple or not a couple, we guess that they're going to get dessert or not get dessert um, based mostly on mirroring. And you can see in a really good date, someone's leaning, they're leaning in, both couples are using the same amount of hand gestures, they're smiling the same amount, they're making the same kind of eye contact. So you're all, you should always be on the lookout to see if someone's into you by, are they mirroring and matching you? Or are they leaning into you? Those are just sort of simplified, but that's a really easy way to kind of give a quick like, uh, like litmus test. Okay. So this might be a little nuanced, but can you kind of hack the system then? Can you lean in so that they see you leaning in and then they maybe mirror you and lean in and then they think that they like you because they mirrored your leaning in? So that is the entire kind of premise of cues, which is these are all cycles, right? So it's a cycle. We spot a cue, we copy the cue, we feel the cue. Well, it doesn't matter where you start in the cycle. Like you could create a cue, like you could lean in, which triggers feelings of motivation and activation, which hopefully they catch and they mirror and then you catch it back. And so, yeah, I think that the whole, my whole goal is, is a different way of thinking about interacting is that not only are you spotting the cues being sent to you. So you're seeing, ah, that gentleman across the room just leaned into this part of the presentation. Great. I'm going to make a note that he really liked this bullet point. Great. You just decoded a cue. The other aspect is encoding, the sending cues. So you could also, if you want to emphasize a point in your own presentation, you can lean into the audience on your favorite bullet point to encourage other leans. So we coded thousands of hours of TED Talks looking for patterns. And this is actually what got me my own TED Talk was doing this research. And we found that is exactly what incredible TED speakers do, is they cue you for how they want to be treated. They cue you for how they want you to interact with their content. And so our cues also tell the world how they should treat us. 
And so if you feel super passionate about a point, if you want agreement, you should lean in on your own points. If you want to trigger engagement or activation, you can lean in on their points or a point that's been said to emphasize or underline it. And that creates this very beautiful, purposeful way of interacting with the world where we know exactly what cues we're sending and what cues are being sent to us. And then everyone feels more in control. I love that. Okay. I have a few quick fires for you. One, can you share one thing that people do regularly in their day-to-day lives, maybe without being aware of it, that's actually off-putting, that's like the opposite of charisma? Oh yeah. The contempt smirk. So the contempt smirk, it just, oh man, like this one, I I see it all the time. So a contempt smirk is a one-sided mouth raise. It's like a, a half smile or an asymmetrical smile. If you try it, try lifting one side of your mouth, you'll feel like a little better than, a little bit like scornful. We actually studied this and we found we had 28,000 people take our facial expression test. This was the expression most people got wrong. Most people think it's half happiness or boredom, but actually a smirk is a very, very powerful cue of disdain, of scorn and pessimism. So I see people do this in their LinkedIn profile pictures or their dating pictures, or as a punctuator, they will smirk in a meeting to show like, yeah, that's cool. But actually, it's a really negative sign. So please look at your profile pictures and make sure you do not have an asymmetrical smile. Okay, I love that. And then, could you share one thing that we could do to be one thing that we could do to be more charismatic in a long term relationship, like a relationship we already have established? Maybe it's a coworker we've had for years, or a romantic partner we've had for years. Yes. Okay. So um, know their punctuator. So I love talking about cues. I think for way too long, I was afraid to talk about this hidden language, but this is a language that we are speaking with our long-term people, with our partners, with our colleagues, with our teammates, with our friends. We are constantly speaking this language. We should be talking about it more. And so the more that you can learn these cues and identify these cues together, the more empowered you're going to be. So you should know what are your long-term folks punctuators? What cues do they regularly use? And what do they mean for that person? So for example, you might have someone who frequently uses the contempt microexpression. You should call them on it or ask them, what do you mean? They might be using it as, a, as an emphasis. You could actually help them by telling them that it's actually setting off the wrong cue. And so the more we can talk about our cues, the more we have open, transparent relationships. I love that. Maybe we can book club your book with people in our lives. Yes. Yes, please. And you can share copies. You can listen to the same copy. I also read the Audible book. It's really fun to do the exercises and also cross-check. So like one of the early exercises in the book, I'll ask you to identify your warmth and competence. And we're only okay at identifying our warmth and competence. It's actually way easier for others to identify our warmth and competence. So if you have someone you trust in your life, take the quiz as each other like take it for each other so you can see how you would rate each other. I love that. I'm definitely, I saw that in the book and I'm definitely going to do that with my husband. He loves when I come away from podcast interviews with homework assignments for him. That's his favorite thing. Can you just leave us with one homework assignment, like one small thing that we can all start doing today to be more charismatic? One really powerful exercise, if you're willing to do it, is go find a recording of yourself. So it could be an old Zoom recording or a presentation yourself, or if you need to make one, record your next Zoom call and code your cues. 
we are so unaware of the cues we send. We're unaware of the facial expressions we make, the gestures we make, the vocal power we make. See how often you roll your shoulders up. See how often you're doing that contempt micro expression. Just put it, uh, you know, watch just your end of your, of a, of a recent call or recording and just code yourself. If you, the only way that we can begin to take control of our cues is to know, to, to know to, what we have to change. And so paying attention to what cues you're already sending, that's a great baseline to be aware of the kind of cues you're sending to others. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Vanessa. There's just so much food for thought in this conversation and so much more in both of your beautiful books. So I so appreciate all of the research you do and the way that you make it so palatable and even fun to learn. I hope you loved this episode with Vanessa. I am so curious to hear what you're going to try. So definitely share with me on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody and Vanessa is at V Van Edwards. And if you love this episode, please send the link to someone that you think would benefit. It makes you look smart and helpful and cool. And it's the best way to help support the podcast. So I will appreciate you massively. So it's like a win, win, win. And if you wanted to write a quick rating or review on your favorite podcast app, We are less than 200 reviews away on Apple Podcasts for my goal of 2,000 reviews, so that would be super, super, super appreciated as well. If you are new here, make sure that you're subscribed so that you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. We've got one about the future of gut health, and we have a style guide for summer, and you don't want to miss either of those, right? I didn't think so. Okay, I love you, you fabulously charismatic human you, and I will see you on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. I always say that the most important things that you can do for your health are the ones that have the biggest impact for the smallest amount of effort. Using non-toxic laundry soap is one of my top hacks for that reason. I am not going to buy all organic clothing, but I can make sure what's touching my skin is as healthy for me as possible by washing all of that clothing in the safest possible laundry detergent. That is why I'm so excited to tell you about a brand that I am using, Molly's Suds. This is actually the first non-toxic laundry detergent that I came across so many years ago, and it's a staple that I have continuously come back to time and time again. If you remember, Dr. Sarah Villafranco actually recommended Molly Suds in our episode about skin health because it's an SLS-free brand, which is actually really hard to come by, and it's incredibly important, especially if you deal with dry skin, acne, or any irritation. Molly Suds is free from 1,4-dioxane, formaldehyde, synthetic dyes, fragrances, SLS, like I mentioned, and other harmful chemicals that can cause cancer, disrupt your hormones, or cause allergic reactions. They are also free from optical brighteners, which are particularly interesting because optical brighteners are designed to bind to your clothing and stay there, which means they are always coming into contact with your skin, and they can cause irritations and sensitivities. They're also awful for the environment, yet the vast, vast majority of detergents that you buy at the store contain them. Seriously, Google the detergent that you're using. I bet that it has it in it. But Molly Suds does not, and they're proven to be more effective and more cost-effective on a price-per-load level than leading brands while leaving out everything that can harm you. Molly Suds is cruelty-free, vegan, and Leaping Bunny certified and proudly made in the USA. Make a healthy choice and make the switch like I have to Molly Suds. You can pick up Molly Suds on your next Target run or just for the Liz Moody Podcast listeners, order through my exclusive URL to get 20% off all Molly Suds products. 
To get this fantastic deal, go now to M-O-L-L-Y-S-S-U-D-S dot com slash Liz Moody and use code Liz Moody at checkout. Again, for 20% off, go to Molly's Suds dot com slash Liz Moody and use code Liz Moody at checkout. 